Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm so thrilled today to have one of the most gifted chief executives in the world, Margot Georgiatis, a woman who, after having been a Googler and launching the turnaround of Mattel, ended up reinventing an iconic company, Ancestry.com, one of the most extraordinary and expansive databases of family history. To leverage that knowledge into becoming one of the most gifted sources of DNA and information about how to improve our health. She's taken that into private equity and venture capital now where she's helping spawn businesses that dramatically improve our standard of living and our health. Margot is a great mentor and listen to how she talks about leadership and what it's like to be a woman who's changing the world one company, one team, one person at a time. When you first started, you came into an organization that had always had that mission, but had gone through some dislocation and some, some change. How did you go about reorienting or re-engaging um, the organization in, in, in its mission? Or how would you evaluate that, that period when you were first starting? You were brought in from the outside, so you were a newcomer. Um, how would you characterize that period and what would be your advice for others kind of entering uh, that sort of opportunity? Yeah, I sense the, uh, when I came into the organization, it was, when you looked at it from the outside, it's such a powerful product and experience. And yes. I was expecting uh, to find this deeply galvanized culture around yeah. it. Um, but, at, you know, what was interesting is sometimes that's, that power when it's felt individually isn't necessarily felt collectively. Mm. And I think the company with all of its success um, had never really expressed openly uh, what that mission meant as a collective, what we were all working for and what the values were uh, that we mm. held dear to enable that to happen. And so uh, what was, uh, for me, I, I, I view, you know, you kind of come in as a new leader and your job is to galvanize the organization against a clear and shared mission and then strategy and values that can enable that to happen. And yes. so we really stepped back and said, how do we respect the past and everything that's been built in this company in a truly important way, but create a mission and a set of values and strategy that takes us to the future. And it's that balance between the two that I think people hunger for when they create that emotional contract with the company. And for us, um, you know, we, we created a mission, we empower journeys of personal discovery to enrich lives. And the words really mattered because it was about what we do. We empower these journeys, they're personal, they don't end. But it's what that person decides to do. Every person comes to our site with different needs, interests, experiences, and our job is to provide the tools that enable them to find meaning. We don't give them the meaning, they find the meaning in those stories, in those experiences, and in the insights and the people they connect to. And that was for us that respect, you know, for everyone's story being important, but also personal. And then we had the aspiration to be able to unlock the power of our genetic network beyond just for the purpose of ancestry. And so we needed a mission that gave us a canvas to paint on in this future of personalized preventive health. Um, our, our values came from really, I put a history team together and our, our focus was to identify what were the characteristics when we were at our best as a company over the last 30 years. 
when we, when we exhibited these characteristics, it, it was our moments of the most innovation. And that history committee landed us on our three values uh, that we hold dear in, in how we do what we do, which is we're customer obsessed, which means we wake up every morning saying, how do we help them make one more discovery? How do we make sure that they have a great experience? Um, hmm. Second, we pioneer relentlessly. The only reason this company survived multiple technology evolutions from CD-ROMs and magazines to the internet, <laughs> yeah. subscription, uh -huh. genetics, it's because we were trying to always pioneer and create one more step to make our product better for the consumer, to democratize access, to make it simpler and easier, to get to a next level of insight uh, that would connect everyone. And then lastly, we have to empower each other because we're a company where the beauty's in the blend. It's probably the most complicated company I've ever run because it's connection between amazing historians and archivists, right? Um, Sure. Tremendous technologists and AI and machine learning experts that, you know, have the largest content database in the world, right? We're, wow. I believe, uh, probably 26 billion historical records and 30,000 collections. It's enormously complex. But then we have the leading edge population geneticists, health geneticists. We have content creators. We make TV shows and all sorts of amazing content discovery vehicles and then we have all these expert genealogists that understand this craft so when you think about all these different expertise areas that all have to come the beauties and the blend and if we don't empower each other we need all those skills to be at their very very best but we need great t-shaped leaders that know how to unleash and collaborate with colleagues and when we do that amazing things happen but it's all of that yeah. But, but it came from that, you, you were bring, bringing into the collective consciousness the, the set of values that were there, uh, and you gave them the, the tools and, and perhaps the structure and en encouraged the organization to see what was so rich about the foundation that had been built there. Um, and, and, and then you called out all these groups. So you're celebrating one group right after the other as you described exactly them just now. Right. It's so important. And I think, you know, everyone, a great mission includes everyone. It respects the past and it enables the future. And it gives people a canvas for that collective experience because it's the power mm. of the collective that makes companies great. Um, and I think that's what's really helped empower us to innovate our products and services like never before um, on behalf of the customer. When you think about the group of outside stakeholders and resources that you can call on, many people who are entering the role of the C-suite soon discover that while the buck, the buck stops here, there is a collective of folks who have some volition and, and, and great advice and uh, a lot of the permission to decide when you're successful or not. That's the board of directors, uh, the, sh the shareholders, perhaps communities that you serve and so forth. Could you talk a little bit about that, the relationship you build with your, in a sense, the group of people who are your boss when you're the chief executive? Yes, I think that's one of the um, aspects that most people don't realize, right, as a chief executive. You, you spend a lot of plates. You have a lot of different stakeholders. And I think that creates a lot of energy when you harness that for multiple perspectives. But it also may, has a, is a challenge in the sense that you sometimes have to decide, right, who's first, second, and third um, in the line of the tough calls that you make about the business. 
You know, for mm -hmm. us, you know, we have many different uh, stakeholder groups. We clearly have our investors and our bondholders more on the financial side. Uh, we expanded mm -hmm. our board with some really brilliant leaders uh, from great companies like Netflix and Google and um, Stanford, uh, the Dean of Stanford Medical School, right? So we really added to our board people that really could see the future with us and help us really transform our thinking because that's what boards do. They both help you stay balanced, but they also help you see forward and break through boundaries. We have a wonderful network um, of historical people all over the world. There's a phenomenal network of people that, are, that um, preserve all the records all over the world. And it's both local governments, it's mm. archivists that exist in different areas, and then it's all the local genealogical societies. Most people aren't aware that there's a little genealogy society in every single town all over the world mm. that's really been the keeper of a lot of this craft, which has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we, we have to really think about all these different associations, local, right, state and national that we collaborate with to create the ability for people to have access to all these records online. And then there's a huge scientific community that we're part of, especially on the genetics side, because genetics is really a very new field. And so we've had to be a pioneer in terms of what are the standards for the protocols and the research that's done. And, how do we do this at you know, the highest possible standards so that we're always putting consumers first and protecting them and their data? And so it's a very wide range uh, that we're involved with. And I, for us, that blend is also great in terms of, of how we you know, navigate our company and make sure that we're in step with our customers, right? our investors and advisors and our broader communities that make our services possible. It makes so much sense as you describe also the people that you've added to the board, uh, in addition to those other stakeholders that you mentioned, who are people who I would imagine provide some strategic input that is defining part of the future that you're describing as you're making more media and as you're uh, in a position where you're providing profoundly deeper levels of search. And uh, is that part of the method that you think of or would advise others as they're continuing to expand and diversify their boards? Yes, I think boards are really important uh, to create that diversity of perspective. So when I arrived, our board was mainly investors and they brought tremendous experience in capital markets, pattern recognition of companies. Some of them had been involved with the company for a decade. So mm. they had extraordinary perspective of where the company had come from. And I find them deeply valuable advisors. But as we crafted our, our strategy for the future, I worked with the board to bring on you know, four new board members that really represented the story of the future. And both contrarian hypotheses mm -hmm. as well, because you know, Netflix being deeply focused on a consumer mega brand and how do you really think about yourself as a powerful storyteller and cultural influencer, contrasted by mm -hmm. right, a former Google executive who turned and run and created a new biotech company that was pushing the boundaries. And those two don't always agree, but that's the beauty of it because one's really pushing the, the, the potential of the technology and the other one's really challenging the brand and the cultural you know, positioning. And, and I found that as a leader to be incredibly valuable. And then two additional board members, one who serially worked in larger companies that have gone through enormous uh, transformations in the, in their um, in their models 
and mm. then the dean of Stanford Medical School, who's on the front lines of what is personalized medicine really going to look like, um, and his experience both at Johns Hopkins and at Stanford at the bleeding edge of science gives us the, the confidence that we're investing in building an asset that truly can be utilized at the point of care in a way that can be transformational for people. Because I think board members can really play that important role, both the strategic, the financial, and how do you see that future that's possible you know, for a company, but also check yourself, is that a year out? Is that three years out? Is that five years out? Mm. And so it's that, you know, it's that blend that I think enables us as leaders to be more impactful. That makes a lot of sense as you describe how they will help you impact those various parts of the business from strategy to operations to future creations and also the wonderful democratization that you're describing with um, your Lincoln-esque approach to having very deep subject matter experts and experienced executives all having a passionate discussion, a lively discussion about really working the issues that help the company transform because it's so easy to get to, too comfortable and success isn't always a good teacher. So cr creating that sort of uh, very rich tension that comes from being able to, to work together with teammates who believe in a shared mission is, is extremely powerful. And, and it's impressive to hear you dis describe that and uh, articulate that in a, in a way that makes me feel that it would be part of also the extension of your succession planning, that I would imagine that board also gets involved in in helping the C-suite evolve and as, as you start to build a, a deeper and deeper bench in the organization, could you describe the succession planning process, how that might relate to the board and, and the, and the C-suite? Some people think about it building a, a deeper bench, something that we're all working at as you scale a, a business. Absolutely, I think every company, and I think particularly crisis like COVID, really remind everyone the importance of succession planning uh, because I, other board that I'm involved with absolutely at the moment was like, wow, what if my top couple of guys get, you know, COVID and they're down oh. for, you know, a month, what's the backup plan? And I think it's always been a priority for boards, but I think this moment has made it even more critical that we think thoughtfully about it. Mm -hmm. um, what I think board members can be really helpful on is, is challenging you to say, if that's really what you want to accomplish, do you have the people for that? Um, and, and how do you think about if the people you have today can really adapt you know, to that future? And they can also really help you in validating and recruiting. So for example, we have this vision of how we can really make a transformational difference in personalized preventative health. And we hired recently actually a new executive who was the head of personalized uh, medicine at Roche Genentech to really mm. help craft. And he had this exceptionally strong background, a spit of a needle in a haystack, but he'd been a primary care physician as well as seeing the pharma side. So we really see the entire value chain. And for us, as we think about the impact we want to have, that experience in connecting the dots and being able to create new and transformational approaches that affect both sides is where the virtual cycle is going to come. And that insight really came from some of the leaders uh, that were on the board who really challenged the candidate list and really said, hey, let's see the problems of the future that you're going to need. Let's get someone who can really have real pattern recognition that they can bring to that problem. Uh, the other thing I find very helpful is uh, the board members, not just in succession planning, um, but really stepping in on some of the key transformational aspects of the business and doing some work sessions mm. with the team. Mm. 
So in our product and engineering organization, you know, it's a 30 year old company. We had a lot of legacy technology and we're now applying machine learning and AI to unlock that capability. And as you said, it's, it's succession planning in context with what, with what needs to be done in the business. And so having them do those work sessions, but having those competencies and skills, they're really able to help leaders think about where are we strong, where are we weak, and then how do we prioritize to bring those capabilities and insert them into the company? And also, where could we partner with others? You don't have to do everything yourself. And so I think boards not just help about succession, but they also are about expansion, right? Of how do you think about the skills and capabilities that are needed for today and then over time? I would think that the team also becomes, it's a bit more obvious when there's stress or there's a crisis, the people who step into the void and are willing to lead and be a teammate. Have you found a, a differentiation between the, the kind of folks that, that are able to step up in, in this scenario? And I would imagine some get called to it and, and come on board and, and others uh, may never, but there are those who uh, certainly arrive at that opportunity or growth at, at different rates. Well, you know, I would definitely agree that crisis is when leaders are needed most. And this is when you're really tested as a leader. You got to be the calm in the storm. And you have to be the person that can provide structure in the chaos. And I think you do rapidly see uh, executives with a lot of maturity are able to quickly and easily provide that structure and also know the power of one. Mm. Because uh, crisis can become a cancer in an organization because it can create ambiguity because it feels exponential and that yeah. tension and uncertainty just can become a huge moment of distraction and I've been really really proud of how my leadership team has seen that there can be no light between us and we need to speak with one voice against one agenda uh, and then we have to show up um, not just be the navigators but also be human because there's a lot we know and then there's a whole lot we don't know. And there's a lot of stresses that people feel in their lives. And if they feel like we really feel those from the bottom of the organization all the way to the top, people are a lot more likely uh, to be honest and open with us about what they need and what's mm. working and what's not working. And so, you know, for me, that's, that's been really great to see um, people stepping up across the company and my leadership team uh, in terms of, of being willing. And, and I do think crises really do test and stress, right, your, your leadership accountability. Mm -hmm. when, when you think about the, this is not your first rodeo, uh, it's, it was a transformation that you've been leading the organization through, certainly even before the pandemic. Um, as it's gone through many generations of, of expanding its identity and impact on the world. You had the opportunity to be chief executive before you came to Ancestry, and then you were at Google before that. What would you say that you wish you knew at the, at the beginning of the, the journey of, of being the CEO that you know today? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if I reflect, every company has its own uh, texture and history. You know, in, in my experience at this company, uh, what, what I wish I knew is that there was uh, two things. There was a lot of baggage in the company about trying new things. Hmm. Um, and the company has been owned by private equity for quite some time. Uh, I had a short spirit period where it was public. 
But I think private equity creates a lot of discipline because it's a leveraged model. And so you, you have a lot of debt. So EBITDA consistency is really important you know, to that model because you got to finance mm. that debt and debt holders don't like uncertainty. And so I, I think the organization misread as we don't really want to be innovative because if things didn't, mm -hmm. didn't kind of pay back quickly, they tended to be cut quickly. Um, and I think that mindset built a certain resistance, you know, to stepping out into the unknown and to really, and for me coming from Google where that's just like breathing, I think <laughs> understanding <laughs> how to really break down some of this innovation into more pieces. Um, I think it would have made it easier, you know, for the organization to galvanize and understand, you know, what that process was going to look like. Because innovation is messy, right? It is. You, a, you see a big idea, and then you decide you're going to move in the right direction, and then you're going to dodge and weave, right, a few times on the way there. Whereas I think most of their experience had been, you know, kind of, you know, hitting singles and doubles and not really aiming for triples and home runs. And triples and home runs, it takes a while to get those right. And so in hindsight, you know, I think we've learned a lot over the last couple of years and we've made enormous progress, but it has to be measured in a different way than people are used to seeing it. And so mm -hmm. if I'd mm -hmm. known that, I think I would have laid out that innovation path a little bit differently uh, so that they could see what's different, right, in this new era. It's so interesting how innovation and disruption is, are kind of the sexy terms of the day. They have been for a few years. And it, it's wonderful to talk about them when it feels very safe and not disruptive. <laughs> and so there's an irony there that uh, in order to be, it's the innovator's dilemma, of course, that, that success isn't always the greatest teacher and that uh, what, once having fought our way into a, a solid position and, and we've risked so much to get there, creating more risk by swinging for the fences isn't necessarily the most natural act. And so here you bring uh, that DNA uh, to this company and, and have a, an ethos around wanting to try new things and to connect in cust with customers in new ways and, and to reach out with, to communities and, and learn more from them and to contaminate an organization, make them feel safe with that. Uh, what were some of the steps you had to take to, to allow people to fail, frankly, or yeah. the, the inconvenience and the messiness of, of it is, You know, I think that's right. I think, you know, organizations are living, breathing people in a sense. Yeah. And yeah. they've developed a set of reactions, right, based on the feedback they've been getting, right? You, it's, it's, it's that pattern that we all get stuck in. And I think that's why certain companies that get on the pattern just keep doing it because mm -hmm. they're self-reinforcing. Yes. And, you know, I think building those self-reinforcing muscles um, takes time. You know, for me, one of the first frameworks I brought in was the concept from Google of 70-20-10. You spend 70% mm -hmm. of your time on things that are going to deliver results over the next year. 20% of your time is on things that can work kind of a year to two years and 10% of your time on things that are kind of bigger shots, but they're against a big target, yeah. but they have a lower probability of success. That really helped people realize I kind of have to plan to grow. Like the reason why those companies grow at a higher rate is they actively plan to always see around the quarter. They're not managing quarter to quarter or plan to plan. They're thinking about momentum. And so I think that that helped people. And I think they 
quickly grabbed it. But I think there's a difference between taking the framework and then building in the processes to enable that to happen. Because what really happens is in the 70, this is what I call the, the 10 percenters, right? That add up. It's all the stuff you do in your core business to make the customer space a little bit better, the onboarding a little bit better, the retention a little bit better. And what that does is you take your core business engine and that just keeps getting a little bit better and a little bit more profitable. And then that funds, right? The 20s and the 10s. And yes. I think it's hard for people to really get their mind around how you think about all the little stuff here. And then these things on the other side have to be bigger. They have to aim at bigger targets. They have to be more transformational because when it takes longer, if you're not moving right a bigger step forward, then you're actually not truly creating that. And if those have to scale to fill in a gap, you know, for growth, and it's a whole new muscle and mindset you have to build through the executive ranks down into the into the organization. And so, I think we've made really good progress on that. But I think, as a leader, we always underestimate. No matter how you know thoughtful we are, how many great places we've worked, I think every leader underestimates the time it takes to build these new competencies uh, through an organization, and that people's readiness to accept them and then their ability to actually execute that in their day-to-day -day is, is another step of the journey. And so I think, you know, as leaders, we always um, want to be bold and have these visions. And then there's this balance between the reality of this organism that is the company <laughs> and how mm -hmm. it learns to ride those new bikes and how everyone learns to do that together and feel the confidence to do it together. And I think in general, as a leader, the best way, you know, I've seen to encourage people into these new patterns is to be willing to take risks yourself and admit your own failures because by mm -hmm. doing that and showing that you can learn from it and go forward and celebrating the learnings that come from every initiative that's pursued. And it, it's not about the search of perfection. It's about the search of forward momentum mm -hmm. and i think once people realize that if something doesn't work they're not going to be fired or drawn and quartered or you know that mistakes you know can but you know but cultures that have done that historically i think it it takes people a long time to get out of that mode you know they're yes. just a little bit protective the minute they see something quite not working they just kind of want to <laughs> get away to the side and you see the old patterns coming out and so the they realize that it really isn't going to happen, but it, it, you have to show them a bunch of times. Yes, you, you're role modeling it yourself, and then you're making them feel safe because you see how the peers are who are treated, who have uh, used that 20% time very effectively by having <laughs> <laughs> a high, I guess uh, the adage that Branson uh, was always quoted as saying is that it's a, that, that, winners lose off more often than losers do because winners are always trying to try that's to right. find that's, new places, right? <laughs> you're so right. I mean, I think that's the one thing that people don't recognize about a company like a Google or others. They, they succeed because they're, they try so many more times. But if, if, if the average person saw the amount of wreckage that was on the field, <laughs> all the things that were tried that never worked, but out of those little kernels of all those things that failed, came you know a really you know great idea that sparked a whole new vector and you don't need that many of those but you do need to try a lot of things 
to find those nuggets, right? And then when you find the nugget, you got to be willing to chase it. And so that is a whole different set of skills and mindset that I think many companies um, have. I want to thank you for being such a great coach and a mentor to to me and to so many people who you've been able to touch in the work that you do, Margo. It's um, it's always been a very insightful and inspiring ride that we take together. So you've touched us today, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to let us both journey into your home and also into your memories. Uh, and uh, no better and more appropriate way to do that than Ancestry.com, <laughs> which is helping us all feel better connected with the people and the communities that, that are our heritage. So thanks, Margo. Appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.